drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. All right, all right, and welcome. This is Drive-By Cinema, Season 3, Episode 36. Woo! With my co-host, Paul. Whipping as usual. And my co-host, Richard. Welcome, everybody! The podcast where we watch the movies so you don't have to. You certainly don't have to. Paul, last week... Yeah. I think we were enthusiastically supportive of the film Primer, a low-budget sci-fi time travel. Indeed so, yeah. Maybe for less than seven, or around 7000 2000 and something dollars. And as we pressed the stop button on our recordings, I found out that Shane Carruth hears allegedly something, mm-hmm. possibly it has been said, of a domestic abuser. Oh, no, very clearly it was, uh, was charged, but I never really saw the outcome of the charge sheet. And so, you know, I don't know whether we have to reevaluate his work in light of his behaviour. Well, I think we have to reevaluate his behaviour, but I'm not sure we have to reevaluate his works of art. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I mean, we don't throw out all of Jim will fix it, do we? Simply because <laughs> Jimmy Savile. <laughs> um, that's not a, good, not a good example. Well, look, Michael Jackson is still on the radio. I was going to come to Michael Jackson, Paul. Why yeah. was I going to come to Michael Jackson? Because you'd be waiting several weeks for me to watch the third of Bobby's Fingers. That's exactly right, yeah. Weeks ago, when it was the latest thing and it was really new and exciting, I told you to watch... Bobby's Fingers. The third of Bobby Fingers' diorama-building videos. Yeah. And finally, now it's all old news and out of fashion, you finally watched it. What do you think? (laughs) I loved his Michael Jackson whelps and yoops, like, periodically. what about the song? What about the song and the finale? I liked it all. I did like it. I was particularly impressed with how he he made a mould out of cow poo. And then, how did you fill it? How did you fill it with with brass? Because it was... Did the pl- plastic inside melt away and the brass take its place? Or Wax. He used wax, didn't he? Oh, so the wax would melt or burn yeah. away. Yeah, he took a mould... That's right. He, t- he takes a mould with horse caca, mm-hmm. as he says. He puts it on the fire yeah. and all the wax drips out of it or what have you. Yeah, no, it was ah, completely super. amazing. Brilliant, yeah. And he did that. He did that over in the west of the world, as he says, where Billy Fingers makes magical things <laughs> in what can only be described as a mushroom-fueled bender. I love his sort of re- re- uh, his uh, repeat joke where he takes the viewers' suggestions of what he does next and incinerates them <laughs> uh, for use in his uh, for use in his dioramas. So I mean, he finishes it with the, allegedly, you know, for for screwing those kids. But I'm not sure anybody's actually suggested that Michael Jackson ever screwed kids. In court, anyway. I mean, who... who? I mean, Corey would do. Because Corey's got such a big mouth on Ramsey. You think he would... Well, he was, Corey, he was Corey's best mate for, for seven or eight years, wasn't he? Right, right. But maybe he didn't do anything with Corey, but he did with others. So, yeah, I don't know. Potentially. But then you could say that about anybody in the whole world, couldn't you? I mean, What's interesting, though, is... Th- I mean, normally people are sort of on a hair trigger about child sexual abuse. Mm. Whereas, in the case of Michael Jackson, people seem to be affording him an extraordinary amount of latitude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is... There's... I mean, because he befriended... He befriended, uh, obviously, lots of children who had terminal diseases. But he also befriended a man who had no face, didn't he? Oh, God. who? What? Who has no face? A man, it was either like secondary burns or something like that. But there was a suggestion, because I, I linked after this, watching this diorama, that Michael lost his face. It wasn't secondary burns. It was third or fourth degree burns he got in the Pepsi advert disaster. Right. And he befriended this guy in order to become him. And he's faked his death. And he's now living his life as this other man. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, that seems a little bit far-fetched, doesn't yeah. it? But, yeah. you know. So, yeah. So there's Michael. Yeah, so I thought uh, it was a really good diorama. I, I I think I enjoyed most of the Steven Seagal one, though. <laughs> Simply because, you know, he, he leaves us on that, that that cliff edge, you know, the cliffhanger did Steven Seagal vacate his bowels <laughs> or not. <laughs> you know, it's just... And in the end, he says it actually didn't. But the fact he takes on that journey was just incredible. I couldn't believe... The song at the end of the Michael Jackson one, I thought it was so good. Yeah, it was Accompanied good. by all good. the strange mushroom vision. It was members. very good, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was pitch perfect. And the beautiful thing about it is, if you hadn't watched the video, you would have no clue what he's singing about. But I thought another good thing about it was the fact that he actually created a, a diecast 
a bronze or a brass diecast of Michael that he, he allowed yeah. to turn into essentially a candle wick holder so that his hair could be <laughs> on fire. And clearly he buried the thing somewhere near Neverland Ranch. Really? Well, that was where he was. You know, when he put, when he put that thing Whoa. down, that was the Neverland Ranch gateway, wasn't it? Which I assume is all abandoned now, like a spooky theme park. Well, it was a theme park, wasn't it? For, for young children with terminal illnesses. I mean, I'm not surprised, looking at the Pepsi advert, because I looked at the original footage, and it is quite disturbing, but I'm not surprised his hair went up, because it was just covered in grease. In gel? Yeah, oh, whatever grease. it was. Yeah, what? I mean, yeah. it was just covered in jet fuel. <laughs> I mean, one one random spark would send it up, you know. I mean, it's a wonder it lasted as long as it did, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And you also saw Kung Fury, you said, but I don't know whether to believe you. Did you see Kung Fury? Through to the end? Not, 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 not through to the end, so I'll have to defer. Okay. No, you, 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 that's okay, that's okay. Got plenty of time before, before they build a sequel. Though. Speaking of films we can see in the movies. Before they put it in a time capsule, yeah. Let's, yeah. Uh, let's introduce your, your music, my music, our music. Wonderful music. So yeah, I mean, a, a, a continuous interest of me, of mine. Uh, one is, uh, I think you you kind of spark this interest is uh, is working gauge in systems. <laughs> I've become obsessed yes. with working gauge. And the no. other thing I'm obsessed with is the failure of the British automotive automotive industry from 1960 to 1980. I'm I'm just fascinated okay. with the topic. British Leyland Motors. Yeah, which is why I introduced my music as the Allegro or Maestro. <laughs> or the Allegro by the Maestro uh, of uh, intro music, Richard. More like the Mini Metro. The Mini Metro wasn't a bad car, except the engine was um, Oxford Morris A engine from 1958, wasn't it? <laughs> a lawnmower engine from the pre-war. I mean, it's a really good 1950s engine. It, I mean, because it was, it was pumping out, you know, 65 horsepower. It was only 10% less, you know, less powerful per cc to modern engines. So an incredible engine of the day, but not something you want 25 years later. No, no. Paul, we went to the cinema to watch this week's movie. We did. We did. I was in the Stockport Light Cinema. And were you alone? No, I was with... In fact, I was with all of my fellow D&D players. But you see, I'm going to have to defer to everything Richard says in this podcast, not like I normally do. Uh, because Richard is uh, de facto D and D aficionado, you know. I mean, this is perfect, isn't it? Because you're not a player, and I am a player. I know nothing about D and D, and so I was together... pushed away from the D and D crowd before I even got to Blood Bowl or the one with cars. What's the battle cars one? It's like a yeah. chessboard. I know you Car Wars, wasn't it? Car Wars, was it yeah. Car Wars? I was. I got thrown out Car Wars. I didn't even get to Blood Bowl. Right. It's like the Masons, isn't it, D&D? Like, you've got various levels of acceptance. <laughs> You're going to say, no, it's a welcoming, egalitarian crowd. Not cliquey at all. Not worse than the sporting and fashionable cliques it, 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 it tries it to shun. To. Yeah. Yes, I see what you're saying. Ah, well, yes, the victim has become the bully. <laughs> no, well, so, now, so, no, no bitterness on my part, all those D&D players who just never accepted me. Uh, but... Now that D&D is cool, and we know that it is all cool physical now, yeah, sports yeah. Cause, cause brain damage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but when it... when it, well, I, I, I mean, it's always been cool with certain people, but now it is generally cool across the board, isn't it, you see? Uh, nerdism as a, as a whole, taken as a whole, uh, is, is a cool thing now, isn't it? Uh, but I was, yeah, but I've lived. You know, I've gone many years living with it as a shameful. I understand, hobby, yeah, hobby. Yeah. And I was rejected from by by, by the cool <laughs> and the uncool. So there we go. <laughs> so having said that, you know, it, it was something uh, of a Michael Jackson Jackson kind of uh, weight on my shoulders to have to sit around the lobby alone. Ah, <laughs> to a PG. Was it film. attended entirely by? <laughs> was it intended entirely by groups of clearly yes, being players? It was, and I was like this this oversized adult just sitting there with my D and D ticket. So, so yeah, there we go. That's good. 
no. But no, so. before, and then afterwards, uh, like a rackety old Volkswagen Golf turned up, I thought, oh, here come the DD fans. And it was. Five of them turned up. <laughs> and three of them had come over from Leeds. So then there were six adults in the lobby, so it was okay. Wow. Now, yeah, you said that you couldn't get any high-fibre snacks at the cinema. Well, you corrected me. What? Popcorn? Yeah, I mean, popcorn is listed as the healthiest snack anyway, I've noticed since then. Oh, wow. But I just don't like, I just don't like popcorn. I can understand that you don't like popcorn. I used to not like popcorn. I kind of forced myself to to try it and and like it. Yeah, because it is better than a whole packet of fruit pastels, which I had instead. Well, I once made the mistake of having chocolates in the cinema. Minstrels. That's what minstrels are invented for, with a hard shell. Shell. Yeah, that's what I got wrong. I had buttons on them. I came out... (laughs) I covered in chocolate. (laughs) So I arrived Not early because uh, like, my ticket didn't come through with email confirmation. I thought, I'm going to have to go down there physically and say, excuse me, I'm in row G11. No, I'm in seat G11. Could you print out my ticket, please? And then as they did that, a second later, my ticket came through. So, Odin, get your act together, please. Well, as I say, I was in Stockport at what I think is an independent uh-huh. cinema called Light Cinema in the Red Rock Centre, which is quite nice, really. Oh. It's- I mean, it's in like a multiplex building, so there's like ten screens, but the seating is all kind of jazzy, and it's all reclines. Whoa. It's not electric reclining. I know probably you and an Odeon with an electric recliner. This is like a manual recliner, but you get a little table. Yeah, table. A little sort of yeah, a little swinging out table. That That's impressive. Yeah, it was really. How full was your auditorium? There was about thirty-five in mine at a rough count. Yeah, we went for a, a, a manatee uh, performance. So. <laughs> a lot of aquatic mammals. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There were probably about 20 or 30 people oh, there. Okay. So cinemas are struggling, but obviously they managed to stay on their feet somehow. Support your local cinema. The thing that the Odeon is doing now is that it's sort of watch as many movies as you want to for 20 quid a month, which. Oh, yeah, that's a common offering. Which yeah, isn't bad, pretty... really, because it is a better experience than, than your TV, isn't it? I don't know how you would know that, Paul. It's better experience than you watching on <laughs> on your smartphone. <laughs> I watch on my laptop, on of... Richard. <laughs> so I... In the back of a car. <laughs> you look, look, these apocryphal rumours. I'm, I'm going to have you for defamation <laughs> carriage. It's ridiculous. But yes, obviously, the cinema is a better experience than most people's. Although, I would, you have to go to the cinema. You know, that is the... The drawback, isn't it? I don't know, but that makes it purposeful. Right. Right. Well, you're going to pay attention, aren't you? I've got no notes here. I didn't take notes. I didn't think I was going to be needing to take notes. Well, so no, you, you don't, because you probably know these characters off by heart, don't you? We'll get into that, surely. I mean, this is not the first Dungeons & Dragons adaptation. That was my question last week to you. Off, off, was it? What, what? Off, off mic. Is this the first Dungeons & Dragons offering that's ever been made to, on Sally Lord? Well, surely everybody remembers the cartoon on Saturday mornings. Yeah. Did Hasbro own it, the franchise, at that point? Well, Hasbro didn't own Dungeons & Dragons at that point, I don't That's think. That's what I meant, yeah. yeah. I mean, Dungeons & Dragons originally started by Gary Gygax and a small company that I think he helped set up called TSR. Right. And they were make, making war games, I think, before they did. So they never had any connection with Warhammer, did they? No, not at all. But Warhammer is now a huge, huge, particularly after lockdown, it's now a gigantic billion-dollar industry, isn't it? Yeah, Games Workshop, yeah. Games uh, Workshop, thank you. I th- Well, I think they are called Warhammer. Well, the shops have changed from Games Workshop to Warhammer or something. But all their properties are Warhammer-themed, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah so there was a cartoon. Right. There was also a film with Jeremy Irons and... Was there? We maybe have to Marlon dig this out. Irons. Okay, sorry, film, Jeremy Irons. And who? He's the bad guy. Marlon Wayans, as well, I think, was in it. Mm-hmm. It's generally regarded as poor, and I'll try and explain why it's generally Is it Highlander poor? Oh, well, I mean, some people regard Highlander as a, you know, a cult classic, don't they? Yeah, and those are the people, the same people that still are my Mel Gibson on. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It probably is in the same furrow of people who admire Mel Gibson that might think that the D&D movie was good. So D&D started out in California, is that not right? No, I think oh. it's like Wisconsin or right. Michigan or some... But it it, it 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 did well West Coast, didn't it, generally, I think? 
I don't know much about how D and D propagated itself in the. But when did when did you become a D and D partaker? Yeah, when I was about fifteen or really? sixteen, uh, something. Yeah, quite early, pretty early in my life. Yeah. Uh, and did you have the whole sort of expensive little kit? Because I remember the, the thing about me that I mean I couldn't really join in with the kits. Was, I couldn't really afford the kit, kind of thing. The kit, the kit. What, well, there's a whole, mean? there's a whole dungeon master kit, isn't there? <laughs> I don't mean dress. I mean like there's a whole box of Trivial Pursuit cards and stuff like that, or, or something. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> You Cards mean, come into it much later. You mean it's highly accessible? Just one twenty-sided die, and you're ready to go. Is that what you're saying? You need a set of dice. There's about five or six right. different of the different polyhedra. The, you know, what, what are they called? The platonic solids. And can you buy them in glitter inside these days? Or yes, you can. And look, you can it. buy them in the little rubber ducts inside, and all kinds of things. Yeah. So you get a set of dice, mm-hmm. and you need the books. And a player only needs one book. The player's handbook usually. If you want a dungeon master who's the referee or umpire, you need a few more books usually. So it's expensive in terms of books, surely. So I was in, you know, in terms of gateway drugs to D&D, I was only ever a pot smoker. I only ever did the adventure books where you have to read through the book and choose a path. Ah, the, the choose your own adventure book choose or the fighting fantasy book. Well, there were two brands, weren't there? Choose your own adventure was purely picking your choices from the page. Right. Fighting fantasy was more like D&D in that you had like hit points and you rolled dice really? and fight. I, th- I think you, I was the first one, choose your own adventure. Okay. So I, yeah, so. so I have to say, I am a complete non-neophyte. I've never, ever played D&D. Right. Like I've sat down, I've sat down in sessions and watched it. Right. I've seen, I've seen, Several so times. you've seen a role-playing game be played. Oh yeah, I've been there for hours and hours whilst it's going on. And of course, since D&D, there are many other kinds of role-playing games. You know, with lots of different sort of moods and themes and ideas going on. And live role-playing is a thing as well. But a lot of people seem to confuse tabletop role-playing with live role-playing. Obviously, they're quite different. My question is, D&D doesn't seem to have made it onto the online arena. Like, as a computer game, you know. Oh, no, no, no. There are lots of computer games. Yeah, that's in terms of adaptations. But they're not D&D experiences, are they? They're just computer games. Hmm. Now there are there are quite a few that use the D and D rules, uh, but usually they're single player games where you're playing all of you're playing five or six different meant, yeah, characters yeah. rather than it, as a team. Uh-huh. And you know half the point of D and D or any role playing game is it's a social experience exactly. with friends. You spend an evening and real ale and real ale <laughs> and are the, the cliches true about this sort of stuff? Well, it can be, yeah. Right. And this is the thing about the adaptations. I mean, we this isn't the first game-based adaptation we've done in Drive-By Cinema history, is it? We also did the film Battleship, we based did, on yeah. board game Battleship. Also by Hasbro, I think, these days. Now, if, if funnily enough, you know, you'd think that making a game about... Sorry, making a film about Dungeons & Dragons would be a lot easier than making a board game. You certainly about, would, yeah. In fact, the same challenge arises in both because in neither D and D nor Battleship is there a story, right? There's set there are a set of rules. Yeah. And I mean half the point about D and D or most role playing games is it is an interactive storytelling experience. And a story will emerge. But as there is not one set in the beginning, you might argue, you know, what what are you gonna do a film about? Jazz is to music as D and D is to extemporaneous storytelling. Exactly. Yes. It's it's jazz in, in fictional storytelling. Yeah. So one of the problems you've got with D and D in turning it into an adaptation is there's no base storyline. There's only a set of concepts, a setting, or a theme. Which D and D being the first role playing game and riffing off the fantasy genre obviously goes straight down the middle, kind of standard fantasy trope. Every you know every turn it makes, doesn't it? So. It's your standard Tolkien-esque, you know, elves and dwarves and stuff like that. And over the years, it's developed a lot of its own little wrinkles. But basically, you know, you're just playing your generic fantasy game, aren't you? So, so before we get to the story, do you, did you recognise the country Thay as being something? Oh, yeah. So the, the, one of the great things about this film that they didn't do in the previous movie or even in the cartoon, really, is they set it in the the biggest and the most popular 
uh, sort of setting for D and D, which is called the Forgotten Realms. Yeah. So all of the cities and the characters are familiar are to you. Familiar. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was released March thirty first in the US. Budget of one hundred and fifty million, which is a significant budget, has made so far one hundred twenty four. So it looks like Look. it's. I mean, I don't think it's been released in China yet. I think it would be probably a big hit in China if it gets a release there. Can't see why it would be banned. Apart from, <laughs> well, apart from evil red armies, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to do fairly well. It might not make its money back, but I think it's done well enough to get a sequel. It's going to get a sequel, mm, yeah, sure. Which is good, I think. It is good, because the other... Well, the other thing that this movie does better than the others is it's got the humour right. So... Obviously, the, the kids' cartoon, if you remember, did you used to watch it? No, no. Okay. So, sad that I have to explain it. What they did in the kids' cartoon was they focused very much on the fact that it's usually a bunch of kids playing the game. And so, in the cartoon, the kids, through some reason, so through some curse, they get drawn physically into the game. Oh. I suppose it's like how... Uh, Stranger Things, the moral majority... Yeah, in a way. It's, it's also how presumably all the moral majority people feared D&D really worked. Yeah, that was incredible, it, wasn't be... it? Yeah. <laughs> So the cartoon has all of the kids who were playing, like physically embodying the characters that we were playing and, and you know, being surprised that they're in this world. And the other weird thing about the game is that the Dungeon Master is a character in the cartoon. Whereas, you know, in the fiction, the Dungeon Master would never make an appearance because, you know, he's just running everything and he's a puppeteer, isn't he? So it's a bit weird to put the Dungeon Master in. And so they went into this universe knowing that they were also humans who jumped into a game. Yes. Yeah. Kind of weird. And they're aware of that. Yeah. It is weird. Yeah. Taking potentially a difficult concept to bring it to the masses, as it were, and confusing the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> for a kid's sort of Saturday morning show. I never really liked the cartoon, got to say. Well, some people seem fond of it. And, I, and Easter Egg, I don't know if you noticed. I guess if you didn't see the cartoon, you wouldn't. But the, the characters from the cartoon make an appearance in this film. Ah, when? Very briefly, fleetingly. In the maze. In the maze. They're the guys who, they're the guys who end up in the cage at the end who kind of win. Because, in, in terms of, have they made a movie like this before? No, it's the first, like... I should say, Dungeon Dragon movie that isn't some sort of weird take on it. I mean, we had Hobbitry, didn't we? We had the <laughs> Hunger Games versus the Maze, kind of like that kind of whole genre. <laughs> uh, we had, you know, WWE, WWF kind of Avengers style action. It was everywhere. There's a lot in here, wasn't there? They're really packed in everything over two hours, 20 minutes. Now, the thing that the other D&D movie got wrong is it took itself too seriously. Mm-hmm. It also used a setting that the producer or director or writer had written themselves for their own D&D game, as I understand it. So nobody recognised any of the story or plot or locations or anything. And, you know, it was very po-faced about itself. But anyone who's played any role-playing game, particularly D&D, knows. It's that most of the time, you know, everyone is just having a laugh. No matter how serious the Dungeon Master wants it to be, someone is going to make a you know, knob joke at some stage. Everyone's going to fall about laughing. And, you know, so what this movie gets right, I think, and why it's so successful is you can sort of see like the character of the players as well in all of the characters. It has been incredibly well received, actually. It's got rave reviews. So, And it's kind of genre savvy. You know, everyone kind of knows both, you know, what they're doing and what they're supposed to be doing, which is how a pl- game is played, you know. There's an element of both. Let's cure its egg, you know. Thematically, they nailed it really well. And, yeah, of course, the other thing in popular culture we know about D&D is that it's demon worship. Well, it's referenced in the last in the last, uh, last series of Hunger, Hunger, of uh, Stranger Things, isn't it? <laughs> the yeah. whole moral majority reaction, where... Strange in the eighties, American Christians believe that if you call the devil, he would he would come and invade and possess your, your child. It's a very weird concept, isn't it? That in a, in a fiction, in a world where you might be fighting against bad guys, mm. some of whom might indeed be demons and devils, you know, that that should be seen as devil worship. You know, as if just mentioning it mm. makes it inherently evil. I mean, the Bible is full of references to the devil, but they don't seem to consider that evil, do mm. they? <laughs> 
No, it is. It's, it's a strange it's a anti-logic, thing. isn't it? That Douglas Adams <laughs> would have had a lot of fun with. Like, you know, sheep discover that wolves wool have sharp teeth to save themselves. They cut out their own teeth. Kind of logic, isn't it? <laughs> but so I've played D and D since I was about sixteen, on and off. And I've come to think of it very much. I mean, you say it's not been online, of course. Over the lockdown, you know, everyone took to their. What Zoom I mean is, what I mean, there's not a sophisticated uh, collaborative multiplayer game system that involves computer graphics, where the whole essence of the book and the books and the whole gameplay is incorporated into a platform system where you can play D and D, but in an animated computer graphic mode. No, I mean there are games that do that kind of thing. And you're in a shared world. But they run very differently from D&D. Mm. And why is that? It's because, because a computer game is game first and storytelling second, right? Clearly. Whereas D&D is extemporaneous and improvised. Well, you can play d and I mean, there are as many ways of playing D&D as there are players. You, know. you, you can play it very mechanically. You can play it like a war game, if you like, and just roll the dice and have a fight. To those kind of players, the story is just something you fast forward through so you get to the next fight, I suppose, and then level up and get the next... I see. But I think a lot of players prefer, you know, at its best, it's the ultimate sandbox experience, mm. you know, where you can choose to do anything you like and only your imagination and th- that of your dungeon master, you know, constrains what you can do. You can literally decide to do whatever you like, can't you? Whereas in a so it does depend on your dungeon master is what you're saying? Uh, well, it, yeah, absolutely, and the whole group, you know, because like everyone has to be sort of on the same page, don't they? I mean, everyone has to be happy playing a certain style of game. It's one of the biggest problems, actually, about Dungeons and Dragons is finding a group of people who you're simpatico with who will play in a way that you're happy playing. You can play a role-playing game as like an amateur dramatics thing or an interactive storytelling thing. Or as a war game, or a mix of all three, I suppose you might say, in the best of best of both worlds. But when it comes down to the roll of dice, can you not? Uh, is there is there opportunity to, to use your weapons inventively or not, or is it just the roll of the dice at that point? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the best DM, the best dungeon masters will always reward inventive play. So. I see. But of course, in a computer game, it's literally can't be that way, can mm-hmm. it? It's literally you press your button and you do, you know, you swing your sword and it works out how many hit points you do. So in computer adaptations, you tend to find all of that role-playing and storytelling stuff is really taking second, like passenger seat stuff. It's a different style of play. Let's just say that. I was trying to think at the beginning of E.T. Are they playing Dungeons and Dragons at the beginning of E.T.? I think they are, aren't they? Yeah, they are, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's, in a way, that's the first Stranger Things-esque thing, isn't yes. it? Although they're playing a very fancy variant, because in E.T., they've got complete 3D terrain. Wow. If you remember, it's all built up like a maze. Certainly inspired me as a kid, even though I hated E.T. But even that scene fact, where they yeah, we've, we've built this entire... Like, does not like that movie. Mob. I don't know why. I don't like that movie. It's it's smaltzy and and what know, Jurassic Park is it's it's enviro hippiness kind of stuff isn't it as well aliens turning up to do gardening for us or whatever okay <laughs> he doesn't like it <laughs> but not the right, movie we're talking do about you love today. ET it... I do it's one of my favourite movies ever oh dear I, I, well look I, I don't mean to attack you Paul but. You know, it's not very sophisticated emotionally, is it? No, it's not. It's not. But it is an incredible feel-good movie. If you're prepared to accept the schmaltz. Also, I was, I was never into BMX either. That's the other barrier to I me. see. So as a kid in the playground, did you not put your parker on and kneel down and pretend to be E.T.? By walking <laughs> on your knees? No, I'm sure we have discussed this. I wasn't yeah. allowed one of those parkers. For the road crossing the snorkel hoods. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you never had mittens on through it? No, I think I did once have mittens sewn through sleeves, but it wasn't with that kind of coat, no. Cycling proficiency tests. Ah, the smell of bonfires in November. Taking us back there. Right, so shall we head on to this movie, Richard? Because it's not E2 we're talking about. What's the story, Paul? Well, it's quite complicated. I can tell you who stars in it if you want instead. to leave the story to you. Chris Pine plays Edgin, Edgin Darvis. Mm. Yeah. He was a bard. And a member of the secret society, the Harpers. 
The Harpers. We're peacekeepers know. of a interventionist nature. And he's got a buddy played by Michelle Rodriguez, Holger. Holger, yes. Who is amazing throughout the whole thing. I, I, I could not sort of watch enough of her, I don't think, in this this film. Holger Kilgain or something? Uh, she's a barbarian, obviously. Uh, a large, Indeed. statuesque uh, participant. Uh, and uh, she's a surrogate to his daughter, Kira. Backstory we'll get to later, I guess, who's been, uh, not orphaned, but left motherless. Simon Armour, who is a sorcerer, or yes, a, a, you know, apprentice sorcerer, uh, from a long and distinguished line of sorcerers, unfortunately, he has neither confidence nor the ability in his sorcering. Forge Fitzwilliam, big name, Hugh Grant. I have to say, before we score, absolutely superb. Beyond and, you know, he's not really with them, is he, until, until maybe the end. He's double-crossed them, hasn't he? He has, yeah. Because yeah. Edgin and Holger start off in prison, which is a classic, like, D&D opening, really. He's stuck in prison. How do you get out, kind of thing. Finally, one person, Sophina, who turns out to be a red sorcerer. Now, you've missed Doric. I have missed Doric. The druid. She comes a little bit later. She's, I mean, Simon's ex-flame. And on their second quest, he says, well, we need the help of a druid. And she's some sort of weird elven. Well, she's joined the elves, but she's not an elf. She's a horned... She's not an elf. She's actually a tiefling. What is a tiefling? Because that's one thing I've underlined, tiefling question mark. This is one of the things that uh, has enriched, uh, I think, uh, D&D over and above the Tolkien, standard Tolkien-esque mm. stuff. Tieflings are kind of a, a demon sort of touched race. Oh, hence the horns. What are those animals and mermaids called? Uh, so, so again or something? No, I don't is, that, is that it? Oh, Merfolk? No, I don't know. Doesn't matter. Uh, wow, okay. That's pretty much everybody, apart from that one guy, like the suspiciously nice guy. Zande, is it? Ah, yeah, Zenk, I think Zenk, he's called. thank you, Zenk. paladin. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Who turns up later? All of these characters are available as characters in D&D. You know, they're all published, so you can use them. So can I start the story? Because I think I understand the bit, first bit of it, okay? And they're then you can prison. take over. So yeah. then, I mean, well, that's the backstory. How did they get in prison? Well, Edgin's wife was killed uh, uh, as an act of revenge by the Red Sorcerers after he'd arrested one of them, at, you know, as his duty as a, as a harper. No, moreover, we, we learn later, he'd also... He was on the take, wasn't he? He was like a bent copper. He'd been arresting some criminal and he saw some of the gold and he took a bit of it. He forswears his allegiance to the Harpers and jo- begins a life of petty crime, which grows in its audacity and its scope until they decide to take the f- tablet of reawakening from yes. a Harper stronghold in order to bring his wife back to life. They're, they're all double-crossed by the Red first, Wizards. First Sophie. action scene, yeah. Safina and and as it turns out, uh, Forge Fitzwilliam, you know, who's played by she, she uses a time stop spell and freezes them as they're escaping, and so they get caught. Simon escapes, doesn't he? Simon escapes. That's right. And we haven't yet met the uh, Tieflink because she's not been joined to the band of Merry uh, Merry Adventurers. Right. So they're in uh, essentially uh, like a uh, a tundra. Gulag, aren't they, really? They are, yeah, exactly. Stunning tower, great CGI. Uh, and they've got to think of a way to escape. Well, Edgin's got a plan, hasn't he? He has, yeah. So he's up for a sort of parole hearing. And he's waiting for Jonathan, the parole officer, to turn up. <laughs> yeah. He's absolutely insistent that he needs to speak before John- Jonathan, despite, <laughs> the re- despite the rest of the parole board being present. We don't see Jonathan right. for a long time. So he's telling this story about how he got involved with crime. That's what we're seeing as a flashback. But as soon as Jonathan, who is an Aurochocra, ah, who are a bird-like a bird race, man. A birdman. As soon as he enters the room, <laughs> Holger leaps up, and together with Edgin, they bundle him through a window, uh, to forcing him yeah. to fly to you know down to the ground where they run away. Jonathan survives. Yeah. Uh, in a hilarious sequence... Because as soon as he jumps out of the window, the other parole board members say, well, we were going to pardon you. 
hilarity. Uh, just the it's just general hilarity running through as a scene running through the whole movie, isn't it? There are so many jokes. This is funnier than most comedies, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also it's also comedy that all D and D players recognise as exactly the kind of irreverent stuff. And that particular line is exactly the kind of thing that an exasperated dungeon master would probably say after the players have made some horrendous mistake, you know. You know, you usually find out that everything you've been frantically doing (laughs) is all pointless anyway. Anyway, they escape back to Neverwinter, which I guess is like, you know, I don't know what it is, really. It must be their home home country. Home city. Okay. It's a city, yeah. Uh, To find out that Kira, his daughter, has been essentially adopted by Forge in their absence. Yeah, they've picked up, they've picked up um, Simon. Yes, and they've picked up Doric. Again, when they pick up Simon, this is hilarious because you know he's he's short of money, and he's going round the local theatres doing fairly terrible magic tricks <laughs> uh, for the reason to pick pockets whilst he's you know to keep the audience's audience's attention on him to pick their pockets via some sort of magic as they're watching, and they interrupt. Yeah, yeah. They interrupt his magic show, everything goes wrong, uh, and he has to use some sort of anti-gravity magic to hilarious effect because he can't do magic, uh, and somehow they all manage to escape. So again, a really funny scene. So they get to Neverwinter and find Forge, and Forge isn't too happy to see them, is he? Well, Forge isn't Forge anymore, is he? I mean, he's he's taken the spoils and, and essentially bought himself a peerage. He's now Lord of Neverwinter. Yes, yeah. incredibly. Because the real Lord of Neverwinter is now in a coma or something. So he's acting... Suspiciously in a coma, yeah. And Safina is his trusted ally, whispering in his ear and telling him, advising him what to do. But he basically has uh, Edgin and Olga executed, or tells them to execute. Yeah, and again, another third great action moment where uh, Holger escapes by... uh, so she picks a brick, brick up, doesn't she? And then does three incredible Kung Fu moves with it. Yeah. Stops the blade, hits him on the head, and then <laughs> undoes her shackles with it or something. It's really good. It's amazing. Very inventive. And um, for the entire for the entire fight, Edgin is struggling to free himself from his from his tied hands. So th- they make their escape. Uh and I think at this point they go and get Sir Doric and Slyman, don't they? They do, uh, but they they commit themselves to going back and robbing Forge's vault. Particularly as they've heard that the High Sun Games are going to be res- resurrected, which essentially is Roman gladiatorship, isn't it? And they know that the tablet of the seal or whatever it's called, the reawakening thing, is in the vault. So Edgin's plan is to use it on his wife who was, after all, killed for his indiscretion. And in do so, prove to Kira that that's what he was trying to get all along, that he hasn't betrayed her. That's right, because his daughter has grown up thinking that, basically, that Forge is her surrogate father and he's you know, a better man than Edgin, tragically. Now, Doric is part of some sort of green community or tree-hugging community or something, Elf- elven community, or I'm not sure. Yeah, the... Uh... The Enclave, isn't it? The Enclave, thank you. The Green Enclave. The, under threat by Forge's expansionary logging activities. Yes, that's right. They're basically environmental protesters, aren't they? Now, what is she? She is a... A tiefling. But what's her... She's a druid. She's a druid. Never has yeah, shape-shifting yeah. powers. That's right. She Druids classically can change into different... We animals. find out the smallest yeah. thing she can become is a worm. It becomes critical later. She can't go smaller than a worm. <laughs> I think she can turn into any animal. I mean, can you think of something smaller than a worm? Tardigrade. <laughs> okay, you have a. I'm not sure they know about tardigrades in the ah. in the fantasy uh, Argo, do they? It's not a thing, really. So they, it's very much become a Star Trek thing, tardigrades. So off they go on essentially their second attempt to infiltrate back to, to Forge's castle. Where Doric decides to infiltrate as a fly. Yes. Not a deer. A fly. That's right. A deer was very much Holger's suggestion, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, but uh, everyone poo-poos their idea because, obviously, you wouldn't get a deer in the city. She gets to the vault and discovers yeah. it has Mordenkainian defences, whatever that is. 
See, I'm putting Richard on the spot here. Yes, yes, there's a spell. A spell on the vault. Well, Mordenkainen is a famous wizard in the Forgotten Realms who wrote it, many oh, of the spells right, the players okay. use, you see. And Simon says, I can't do any of that magic. I can't break that. Yeah, yeah. He's not confident enough, is he, in his abilities? What we need is a helm or helmet. I'm not sure what it was of disjunction. Yes, that will deactivate the magic, the enchantment. Doric escapes a third or fourth action scene now as a deer in an amazing chase sequence through the castle. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's it's beyond superb. It's it's really good. So they have to come up with a plan to find this helmet of disjunction. And Holger's tribe, apparently, fought a battle over this helmet. This is perhaps the most hilarious point of the movie. Because with the talisman of five questions, I just not call that. But well, what he's using is is a standard spell, actually. Oh. It happens to be in a magic item. But it's a standard spell in Dungeons & Dragons called Speak With Dead. Ah. You find a corpse, you cast the spell, and you get, as Simon explains, <laughs> you get to ask five questions, and then the corpse Including, falls back. Is this a question? Yes. Does that count? <laughs> yes. And then after five questions, you know, they go back in their grave. Hilarious. I mean, people... This just... is pure tabletop humour, because... Uh, whenever any spell of this kind is cast in a game, the players have to have an intense, prolonged discussion stroke <laughs> argument about what questions you're going to ask, because you usually got a limited number, right? And a, a mischievous DM, of course, will at every turn try to <laughs> listen out for a question <laughs> and try to fuck the players over. So I mean, and the other amazing thing about well, carry on. Yeah. I'm just saying the audience is just erupting with laughter at this point in the. In the uh... In the in the theatre, so yeah, sorry. So they don't get anything out of the, the corpse, do they? Uh, but they've got a graveyard full of her dead tribe, tribe That's members. Right, yes. So they just go around digging up one after the other, really tracing the root of this helmet through the stories that the corpses tell them. And it leads to Zenk Yander, who is a paladin. I don't know what a paladin is. A paladin is a holy warrior. I see. So someone's why he's so sanctimonious. To a, and he's tilting. That's right. He's tilting at windmills. And uh, yeah, I, again, this is very, very D and D. But paladins have all kind of restrictions on their behaviour. Typically, paladins are played very straight laced, very annoying usually. <laughs> Although they're quite often very effective. <laughs> he does a quick test, doesn't he, of uh, of our, our bard's sincerity. I'm not quite sure what it's all about. We meet him as he's rescuing. A cat demon from a fish or something? It, it, it's actually another race uh, called Tabaxi, who are basically cat people. Cat people. Yeah. And he's uh, pulling a, a kitten, if that's the right word for a Tabaxi baby, out of the mouth of a giant fish. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that Simon is still trying to impress Doric, who's very impressed by Zank. And he says, I've pulled a cat out of, out of a fish's mouth. <laughs> So yeah, very Don Quixote really in terms of his uh, overt and over sincere uh, holiness, isn't he? To the extent he won't divert his path, he, he won't walk around what rocks. He walks over them. <laughs> and Eggin says, it, "Is he going to walk around that rock?" Oh no, he's walked over it. Kind of <laughs> so, well, apparently when they were filming that, the director just didn't say cut, so he just let the actor walk <laughs> over the beach. <laughs> So they literally are really saying, let's see what he does. <laughs> so he extracts a promise from Egan saying, look, if you promise to give back all the other bounty, you can keep the tablet of... To give it to the villagers. That, that was the promise. Keep yeah. the tablet of... Tablet of what? Uh, immortality? I don't know what it's called. You've said it three times already. I know it's with reference to notes, Richard. <laughs> to be fair, I I also don't remember what it is. But it it resurrects someone, doesn't it? Yeah. He said you can have that provided you give everything else away. The key thing here is it can raise Tablet someone from the dead. There we go. Even if they've been killed by a red wizard's blade, which is unfortunately how his wife had died. So in this in this multiverse universe thing, are red wizards a real thing, Richard? Absolutely, yeah. They're they're big baddies. Yeah. They're famous bad guys. Yeah. And I think your description, your comparison of them to the Chinese may be accurate because they they live far away uh, and, you know, there's all kinds of rumours about what who they are and what they so do. So Zenk takes them all on a trip to the Underdark to retrieve 
to retrieve the helm. The helm of destruction, right. which they need to get into the vault to get the bounty. So our fourth or fifth or sixth action quest now. And this is another great big set piece set in the deep, dark caverns of the Underdark, in which, uh, first, first of all, hilariously, there's a, a trapped bridge. And this is, again, classic D&D play, where a complicated trap is, <laughs> is triggered mere seconds as they, before, after they encounter it by Simon putting his foot in the wrong place. That forces <laughs> them to use a major plot device that's going to become critical throughout the rest of the movie, which is the teleportation staff. The hither-thither staff, ah, yes. And is that a thing that's common in most D&D games? No, actually, they made it up, ah. but it's now available in D&D games. Pretty good idea. <laughs> and this is another classic thing, right, where the DM realises that because of player, you know, foolishness, there's now no way for them to get to the next <laughs> bit of the adventure. So he goes, oh, hang on, though. What's this? It seems you're carrying exactly the kind of thing you need to fix this problem. <laughs> They're able to use this. It works like a portal gun, doesn't mm-hmm. it? So it works. You can put uh, a portal on a wall here and a portal on a surface over there. Well, only if you can point to it. through it. As long as you can see it. Yeah. See it, yeah. Little do they know that, you know, watching them in the shadows have been some Thean assassins, undead assassins. Yes. And as they're grabbing the helm of dysfunction, they make themselves known. There's a big fight over the helm and... But they're disturbed. <laughs> By Wikipedia, they call this a pudgy dragon. <laughs> a pudgy dragon. Very well-fed dragon. This is a, dra- a, dra- a real dragon in, you know, D&D lore. There really is an adventure where you meet this dragon. It's called Thembershode, I think. But he's, he's a properly ah. overweight dragon. He has to struggle out of his dragon hole, doesn't he? And he's knocking everything over. He's generally quite clumsy. As a so hilarity and action all at the same time. And heroism as well, because Zenk really, really uh, shows his metal, doesn't he? Here, again, you know, typical paladin, always, uh, always uh, claiming the glory by the skin of their teeth. And it is, you know, it's it's nail biting stuff. They escape the uh, presumably bad breath clutches of the dragon. So you think all will be swimming, going swimmingly well, except Simon cannot don the helm of disju- disjunction because every time he does. His uh, great-grandfather appears and tells him to fuck off. Yes. And his great-grandfather, apparently, we hear, is another famous mage from the Forgotten Realms. He's another name that we know. I think he's called Elminster, isn't he? So they're going down to the castle, but they realise at the moment there's no way they can use a helmet of disjunction to get in there. Luckily, the major plot device, the teleportation staff, has made itself apparent. This really reminded me of how Sean Connery got into the train, the Great Train Robbery. Oh, that's a great movie. It is, actually. Isn't it? <laughs> well, in the Great Train Robbery, though, they get Wayne Sleep. Is it Wayne Sleep? To yeah, he's the cat burglar, isn't he? They they get him to go up in in the station office that's and right, yeah. make wax imprints of the keys. I didn't realise it was Wayne Sleep. <laughs> but they get carried into the carriage, don't they? As as bounty kind of thing. Well, no, no what as they a de- do as a dead person. Sorry, even cleverer than that. What, as a dead person, what? No, I mean, I mean the Great Train Robbery. Sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But similar, like, what's his idea? Similar, yeah. Is to shine the teleportation device on the floor. They, they the- use the hither thither stuff to put a portal on a painting, and they cover it over with you know a painting on the front of it. And then they put that in a bunch of stuff that's going to be carried into the vault on a, on a wagon. Meanwhile, uh, they're going to wait until it gets put in the vault, and then they're going to use their end of the hither-thither staff, and they're going to just jump out of the painting in the vault. When now, it's been put Dory there. does this, but she doesn't end up in the vault. Well, what, no, but what happens is when the guy puts the painting in the vault, it falls over flat on the floor. So when they open the portal at their end, they've just got stone rock in front of them. That's right. Just kind of like a, a dick move from the dungeon master here. And that's when she has to become a worm. No, well, what she tries to do is, like, chisel a hole around the edge, and she thinks she might be able to turn into a worm and get in there. But it's going to take her a while to do that. Meanwhile, I think they've decided to try and get in through the, you know, use the helmet. Oh, Simon finds his anger and therefore finds his metal to face his yeah, grandfather. Yeah. And they get in through the helm of destruction, you see. 
But they get captured, don't they? Yeah, but not they... until uh, Doric has managed to get through to wherever she thought she was going. True, true. And she sees that the vault is a bit of a... Well, actually, they're moving all the treasure out the vault yeah. onto a boat. So Forge is stealing all the, the money that's being... It, it was ostensibly gambling money, wasn't it, for the uh, the yeah. uh, games that you were referring to? So she says, wait a minute, I'm through, but wait a minute, I'm not in a vault. I'm in like a harbour or a quayside kind of thing. And yeah. They're loading all the, all the, all the jewellery elsewhere. So Forge is stealing. He's double-crossing everybody, as, as usual. That's what we come to expect from him. They all get captured. I'm not quite sure how. how. Uh, and their anti-magic bracelets are slapped on the, the magicians among them. That's right. And they're put in the, the games. Which is the maze or the Hunger Games. Yeah. Whichever yeah. movie you prefer. Yes, exactly. It's a bit of both of them. And a bit of, a bit of Ben-Hur and that kind of stuff. And... Spartan and Gladiator and that kind of stuff. It's a bit like the Tri-Wizarding Tournament in Harry Potter as well. It is. There's all that thrown in there. Several there are three kind of... parties. There are three parties. There's them. There's the party from the cartoons. Oh. With a little barbarian kid and a little wizard with a green hat. And there's and a big there's... group of people who like they play frisbee in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. And there's another famous party, I think. I think there's a mercenary oh. company called, I think they're Greyhand or something, but another bit of d Several booby traps in this maze. You don't actually kill your, competitors, your, your co-competitors. There's some sort of time freeze jelly. That's no, that's a, a famous D&D monster called a gelatinous cube. I see. And panthers with, with, with carnivorous orchid ears or something? That's displacer beasts who can kind of... They can transmit an illusion of themselves to be somewhere else, so it's hard to hit them. The huge stone blocks uh, raise and fall in kind of like a Minecraft way, and it's difficult to see how they're ever going to escape this maze. But they figure it out, don't they? How do they figure out? Uh, something clever about going underneath with the, with the blocks, but I don't know how they do it. They jump into the jelly. That's right, That's so that they get lowered down underneath. Why do they get the... lowered down if they're in the jelly? Because all of those columns go up and down, don't they? I see. And so they wind up going down, I think, underneath the thing. Into the Deus Ex Machina, yeah. And they escape from the jelly quickly. As they do so, one of their magic anti-magic bracelets slips off, luckily. Uh, Well, when she puts her hand in the jelly, in the gelatinous cube, the acid kind of starts dissolving it so Uh. she can pull out of it straight away. And uh, I think they manage to get Simons off as well at a later point, don't they? So they have their but magic they find, they find Forge trying to escape with all of the stolen treasure on one of the barges. And they they take over and start fleeing the city, don't they, initially? So action scene number nine or so. <laughs> but they're now realising that the whole reason for this event is actually for Safina to use her evil Thayan red wizard magic to turn the entire auditorium of fans into... The un- an army of the undead, basically. Uh, an army of the undead, yes. Using a very potent red dye airwick kind of thing. <laughs> I'm terrified by plugging airwicks. I'm sure it's doing something similar to us. Paul, you say you're having trouble with I your lungs. Am. That's because of... Do you have an airwick? Mold and mildew removed that I sprayed too much of and inhaled too much of in my bathroom today. So, so you don't have an airwick? I don't. No. I have one, but I've no. not plugged it in because, as you know, they only last about three months. Um, right. Okay. So the, the the later you use it, the the later you'll have it. Is that your idea? Hopefully, yeah. So if you use it at the last possible time you could possibly need it, then it'll be it'll be better, won't it? So we have a fake end. I'm not sure what you call that in movie making terms. Where we kind of think it's all over. They're sailing away to success, and they then they see Sophia's red cloud above the above the Colosseum, and they bravely head back for one final showdown. Is it, is it called a heel turn? Ah, yes, it's called a heel turn. So at this point, you know, Thank you. They're, they're getting away with the money, but their good, you know, their ethics get the better of them. And, you know, Ed, Edgin turns the boat around so they go back to try and save everyone, which they do in a clever way because there's a hot air balloon hovering over the auditorium, the arena. And which plot device are we going to be using at this moment? The teleportation stuff? <laughs> of course, yeah. 
Yeah. And it's Why got a not? picture I mean, of it's, it's got a picture of Hugh Grant on the b- balloon, doesn't it? So they put a, a port a portal opening in his mouth on the balloon, and then they put one in the bottom of the boat where all the treasure is. So he starts vomiting treasure out all over the arena. The citizens um, rush out the Colosseum, avoid the red dye that's, that's going right. to stain their aliveness. And uh, everything seems to be ending well, apart from our final, final showdown between Sophia, Sophia's evil magic and the combined talents of Simon and Doric. So many great action sequences, but th- this last one is a big fight between Sophia and the Doric is an heroes. owl bear, I think it's what it's called, or a bear owl. An owl bear, yeah, another very famous Dungeons and Dragons monster. Yeah, a stone fist and a dragon, a stone fist. Oh yeah. A spe- that's a special spell, yeah. yeah. Incredible. Uh, Sophia has her time stop spell, which she uses with abandon. And well, she's about to die, isn't she? So you can imagine why. There's great special effects, aren't there? It's, it's a really good fight. But to cut a long story short, at the end of the fight, they have defeated Sophina. But in the fight, it seems that Holger mm. got stabbed by a red wizard's blade. Which is uh, apparently incurable. fatal. Fatal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so she's dying, but Edgin has the choice, this, isn't he? he has this thing that can be used only once to raise someone who's been killed with such a blade. And he realises that in raising, if he uses it on Holger, although he won't be able to raise his wife, Holger has been his daughter's mother, you know, for most of her life. It's quite sweet at the end, isn't it? There's a little iridescent dragonfly watching. Which yeah, led who is to the spirit his, of his wife. Spirit of his wife. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose she should be reincarnated as a dragonfly. So three false starts to the end, you know, kind of like three, two scenes that you don't expect to be there, but are. And of course, Forge gets his comeuppance. He gets sent to the uh, Arctic Gulag, where he attempts <laughs> hilariously to escape in the same manner by jumping onto Jonathan. But they brick the window up, yeah. so he bounces off. <laughs> yeah. So. Raucous, hilarious action. Two hours and twenty minutes of it didn't drag at all, you know. So, uh, did you see the uh, mid-credit sequence? I did, yeah. Because uh, yeah. uh, it's one of the corpses who was left <laughs> not having answered all Four five questions. questions. Out of five, yeah. <laughs> Ask me another question. <laughs> yeah. So good, eh? Yeah, a great way to spend an afternoon. Definitely. Compared to like all of the Marvel stuff, well, this is just... it. We have to come to Marvel comparisons, don't we? Yeah, because it's clearly going to. If it is successful, it's going to spark a series, a franchise, isn't it? The thing about Marvel is, um, I've always said this: is I welcome that level of action, but there is. It's all Allegro. It's there's no. There are no moments of anything that isn't WWE kind of action. You know? <laughs> it's kind of numbing the action in a Marvel movie. Yeah, and the stakes are always so high. And this you know, is they're a, always saving the universe. Yeah, you know, there, there's, there, there's storyline between the action here, and it, it just that lull just allows your retina to rejuvenate and and see the color of the action when it comes again. So much better pacing and much better tone, I thought, than the Marvel movies, and just less metallic and less two dimensional. So, so yeah, an achievement, I think, to have so much action. I think there's ten action scenes in here. And yet for it not to feel too clangy and too metal and too too. It is an achievement. It's an achievement to make a successful adaptation of what is basically a very difficult property to to do this with. I I, I would have scored it down for the teleportation staff, except it was just used so inventively throughout. Yeah, and as I say, it's it's classic D&D play stuff. Because, you know, the Dungeon Master is playing the game as well. He's trying to keep the story going. Mm keep the players interested, but also make it seem like a challenge all the time. So it's a really delicate balancing act, like the umpire of any game, right? So inventive solutions to players being complete idiots <laughs> is a very important part of what a DM does. When, when they're and there is idiocy in evidence with all our players here, isn't there? They're very, very endearing. Very yes. flawed. Yeah. <laughs> and very brave, you know. So, so yeah. Everyone seems to love the moment where Holger goes back and meets her, her halfling. Ex, her what is halfling a halfling? Lover. It's a hobbit. It's it's oh, the, it's a hobbit. It's the copyright distinct term for a hobbit. <laughs> I see. 
Seems she has a type, doesn't it? So she's a bit. Of... She, she 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 has the eyes on another smaller guy, doesn't doesn't she? At the end of the movie, <laughs> when they're being awarded medals or whatever. So yeah, I thought the combination it was never dis- incongruous, or there was never a disjunction between the hobbitry, the WWF kind of adventure action, and the kind of the meld of Hunger Games, the maze, and Gladiator. You know, it. it I mean, plot wise, it was very thickly plotted. But it all seemed to work for me. So yeah, it's just a lot of fun, mm. and it's successful in that way. Glad you liked it. No, I, I, I desperately my, uh... liked it. You know, I didn't think I was going to do, <laughs> but I did because I'm not a big fan of Ho- the Hobbit movies and you know Lord of the Ring movies, Peter Jackson stuff. I'm not. I have to. I'm just not. It's just not it's how the Hobbit. Antidote, not how the Hobbit reads. You know, the, those books take themselves very seriously, don't they? They're mm. high fantasy. Mm-hmm. They. There's nothing particularly. But his like vision of the book isn't how I read the book. You see, is the problem I have. Sure, I yeah, just see. Yeah, it, okay. I see the Hobbit world as maybe in a much more magical place, whereas his is just mm. like lush New Zealand. This film was filmed mostly in Ireland. Was it? All those, all those castles and stuff were mostly Irish. Yeah, uh, it looks like a hell of a lot of fun to have been in this film. <laughs> yeah, they had good fun. Well, should we do acting then? Yeah, I, I mean, I think for me, extra acting marks have to go to Hugh Grant. For yeah. being a very, very kind of erudite uh, and uh, verbose sort of classic British baddie, just brilliant. I just thought he, he really, he was the you know the icing on the cake for me. Chris Pine is is very charming, charming as the yeah. the bard, and you like Michelle Rodriguez in particular. I, I think she's amazing. You know, when you think about it, in this film, you know, she is the only real warrior. She does all the big fighting, yeah. doesn't she? It's just great to see, isn't it? So I'm going to, for the acting, I'm going to give this an eight and a half. I went eight on that. Very impressive. Plot-wise, did you think yeah. they tried to do too much or not enough? Or No, I thought it was a really good plot. Mm. I mean, and the writing is very clearly written by people who play and love Dungeons & Dragons, uh, but also very intelligently written, so it's not exclusionary. There's a fresh aspect to this that... Yeah. You don't see many movies. It has to be an eight. It is an eight for me. Special effects? Special effects. I was pretty wowed by these, I have to say. Uh, I loved it. So an eight yeah. for me. Especially all the shape uh, shape changing as, uh, as Doric is escaping the city. It was an amazing sequence, like you said. How'd you score it, Rich? Uh, but the whole thing, really cool. Yeah, I, I will also give it an eight. Oh, perfect. Hell. Final, I mean, how about just fantasy in general? Did it take you to another world or not? Yeah, it did. I, and one that I'm mildly familiar with, perhaps too familiar for my own good. <laughs> uh, yeah, so for me, it's uh, definitely a, a seven for you. This I, really worked for me, maybe because I'm not that familiar with the Dungeons & Dragons uh, franchise. I scored it a nine. I thought it was very, very convincing. I mean, it should be said that you can play Dungeons & Dragons in lots of different settings. You know, this is just one of many. Just one of the strange things about doing D&D is that it's, you know, it's fundamentally, it's a rule system with a bunch of stuff shoved on the side. But I thought the whole experience was very immersive. It was... And a final category has got to be converting a game, a board game or a video game, to a film. Well, I think in this instance we have to say successful, don't we? Very successful. Absolutely. It, it, it well, it captures like everything about D anD D that I think you would want it to. You know, it captures the grand storytelling stuff, but it also captures the irreverent humour that comes about with getting drunk with a bunch of friends of an evening, or not getting drunk as you prefer. So yes, sorry, it's got to be an eight for minimum for board game conversion. I score it in nine. Final nine. observations: the level of hilarity. Just there's just a wonderful sense of fun about the movie, and the musical score is just astounding. So, so yeah. So overall, I'll give it a nine. I'm gonna give it eight point five, and a very definite recommend. Definitely. Hey, be interested to see how does it how well it does in the box office in, in the next few weeks. I think it you know might do rather well. Also, slightly trepidatious about you know what they do for sequels, but let's not dwell on that, Paul. You had like a clutch of three or four films. Uh, I'm just trying to read my notes here. Okay, uh, Black Box is the first one. Yeah, Black Box. Okay. The second one is Vesper. 
Vesper, okay. Without an A, with an E-R. Sort of post-apocalyptic future thing. And yeah. I think I can read my third one now. It's Brian and Charles. Which I'm not Brian too and Charles. sure about. Something about a Welsh person creating a robot out of a Frankensteinian out, severed head. Out of a washing machine, yes. yes. There we go. Those are your choices, Richard. <laughs> Operation Fortune is the fourth one, in case you fancy it. Well, I have seen Operation Fortune. Mm-hmm. Of the ones that you've listed, I I would choose, and feel free to disagree with me, I would choose Black Box. Let's do Black Box. Let us do Black Box. All right. That's decided then. Black Super. Box it is for next week. Thank you for listening. See you, Johnny, next time. Until the next time, goodbye. Ciao for now. See you on the next one. Thank you.